They say that confession is good for the soul. So I'm going to start with a bit of confession here this morning. I want to tell you about the first film that I cried in. The film was the great film, Titanic. Now you may laugh, but I'm sure I'm not the only one, all right? It's a great movie, and uh, I was 12 years old, and I cried in Titanic. It's got brilliant scenes, but I just want to tell you about one. It comes just after the captain, the engineer, and the owner come to the realization that in a few hours, the ship will sink. Everything will be at the bottom of the ocean. It's all going to be gone. And it's at this point that the director of the film takes us around the ship, and there's pictures of joy, laughter, and excitement. Everyone is having a great time, particularly the first-class passengers. They're financially well-off. They haven't got a care in the world, and it's obvious that they are oblivious to reality. The ship is about to sink, and yet they are living it up in luxury. They're wearing the finest clothes, they're wearing the finest jewelry, the wine is flowing, and they're having an excellent time. If you went around the Titanic at this point, and you went to interview the people on the ship, I wonder what they would say. I'm sure they would say, we're rich, we're happy, we're on the Titanic, we haven't got a care in the world. Even God couldn't sink this ship. Perhaps that's what they would say. But as you watch the film, you actually start to feel pity on them. They're having a great time, but they don't have a clue about the reality of their situation. They're blind to the fact that in just a few hours, everything will change. 1,500 lives will be finished, and they are blind to that reality. Although they're wearing the finest clothes, they're actually poor. They know nothing of their situation and they can't save themselves. It's all reflected in the shipbuilder's eyes. He was an Irishman, and you watch this guy walk around the ship. He knows himself what's going to happen, and he's not smiling. Rose, who plays Kate Winslet in the movie, says to the shipbuilder, Mr. Andrews, I've seen the iceberg, and I can see it in your eyes. Please tell me the truth. He replies, the ship will sink. She says, You're certain? He says, yes, in an hour or so. Please tell only who you must. I don't want to be responsible for a panic, but get to a lifeboat quickly. Here is the issue. You will only ever understand Good Friday. You'll only ever understand the Christian faith if you understand that we too are in a titanic situation. Do you realize that as we gather here today? We are in a titanic situation, and we must get to the lifeboat. The Bible's view is that we are in as much danger, if not more danger, than those on the Titanic, and we are in desperate need of rescue. I wonder if you see that here this morning. We are in need of rescue, and our lifeboat is the cross, the cross of Jesus Christ. Ever thought that it's strange that Christians gather together on what is called Good Friday to celebrate the death of someone. How can we call this day good when it's about someone dying? What's it all about? No other religion celebrates the death of its founder, yet the cross is at the heart 
and the symbol of the Christian faith. Why is that? It's because at the cross we find rescue. Today, I hope to remind us of why we need rescuing and how Jesus is the lifeboat who saves us. We're going to have a look at the verses that were read out earlier. Mark chapter 15, verses 33 to 39. And I'm going to start by making three points. God is angry, God punishes Jesus, and God accepts us. So firstly, God is angry. Mark chapter 15, verse 33 says that at the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. The way they used to count in those days was they used to start at six o'clock in the morning. So the sixth hour is actually 12 o'clock midday. The ninth hour is 3 p.m. in the afternoon. So for three hours during the middle of the day, during the day when you know, the sun is at the highest point, when it should be the brightest time of the day, it's completely pitch black. Rather than it feeling like midday, it feels like midnight. It's completely dark. Imagine being there. You'd be freaked out, wouldn't you? I know I would be. It's the middle of the day and it goes completely dark. What is going on? In the Bible, darkness is a picture of God's anger and his judgment. If you think back to the second book of the Bible called Exodus, God's people, the Israelites, are slaves in Egypt. And God is angry at Pharaoh and how he's treated the Israelites. So God sends a number of plagues against Egypt. One plague is the plague of darkness. We read in Exodus chapter 10, verses 21 to 23, that God sent darkness over Egypt for three whole days as an act of judgment on them. But interestingly, the Israelites have light in the places where they lived. What is happening? God is sending darkness as a sign of judgment on the Egyptians, but not the Israelites. Why is God angry? Well, we look at, if we look at Psalm 105, verse 28, they reflect on that Exodus story. And the psalmist says, He sent darkness and made the land dark. For had they not rebelled against his words? Why is God angry? Because ever since the first human beings, Adam and Eve, human beings have rebelled against God's words. I'm from Brighton, and a few years ago I was driving uh, down back to Brighton to see family And uh, I arrived in Brighton at around 12 o'clock midnight. It was a long drive, and I just wanted to get home. And so here's my second bit of confession. Shamefully, I was speeding. I was going 45 miles an hour in a 30-mile-an-hour zone. I was driving along a straight. I curved around the bend, and there they were, the cops, ready to catch me. Sneaky, they were, sneaky, hiding behind a bend. But they got me. They caught me. They asked me to pull over, and they gave me a £60 fine and three points on my license. I know, I know, harsh. Harsh, isn't it? I know. I felt it right here. Right? I know what it's like. And uh, the interesting thing was is that as I'm pulled over and I'm talking to them, I'm trying to persuade them that I'm not guilty. I'm trying to persuade them to let me off. I'm trying to persuade them to let me go free. Deep down, I know that I'm guilty. Deep down, I know I deserve the punishment. And yet, I'm trying to get away with it. Isn't it interesting that all of us want justice? All of us want the guilty to be punished. The guilty to be put behind bars, perhaps. Yet, what happens when we're the guilty person? We want to try and get away with it, don't we? We want to try and escape judgment. But the reality is, 
that the Bible tells us that all of us are guilty of rebelling against God. There's no way out, and we deserve a punishment. Isaiah 53 verse 6 says that we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. In other words, rather than listening to God and his words, we go off doing our own thing. We turn our back on God and we go our own way. It's almost like we slap God in the face and say, thank you for your good gifts. Thank you for creating the world, but actually, no thanks. I'm going to go my own way and do my own thing. I'm the boss of my life. Isn't that what goes on in the human heart? If we just think about our own hearts for a second, you'll know what I'm talking about. You'll know that things aren't quite right in there. You know that we feel selfish and jealous and envious and so on. We don't dare to talk about it, perhaps. But when we read things in the Bible, like Jeremiah 17, verse 9, which says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. We just want to ignore it, but deep down we know it's true. Every day there's evil thoughts that go on in our minds. And the Bible says that there's a punishment for that. Romans 6 verse 23 says that the punishment for sin is death. That is the punishment, and that's an eternity cut off from God. But let's see what happens next in this passage, because something happens which is extraordinary and changes the world. It changes everything. We read in Mark 15, verse 34, that actually God punishes Jesus. This is what it says. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lamech sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At the cross, Jesus is taking on the punishment that we deserve. Jesus is being punished for us. Yet he didn't deserve it. 1 Peter 2 verse 22 says that he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. He didn't deserve to die. He was a perfect man, but he went through it all for us. He cries out, why, God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me alone? I've done nothing wrong. I don't deserve this. And he didn't deserve it, but God was punishing him in our place. If you read the whole of Isaiah 53, verse 6, it says, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. And and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus was whipped. He was beaten. He was spat at. He was insulted. And he was crucified. The worst death you could possibly imagine for us. All the things that aren't right in our lives, all the things that aren't right in our hearts are laid upon him at the cross. He takes the punishment that we deserve. All of God's righteous anger at us is laid on him and darkness fills the whole land. Jesus, in effect, goes through hell for us so that we don't have to. Hebrews 9.22 says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. The reality is that someone has to shed their blood for there to be forgiveness. And Jesus sheds his own blood for us. I wonder if you're trusting in Jesus' blood this morning. We're in a titanic situation. And if we don't trust in Jesus, there's going to be consequences. But we don't have to suffer if we put our trust in him, our lifeboat. So is that it, you might be thinking, is that it? Again, we read 
in Mark 15, verses 37 to 38, some remarkable stuff. We read that God accepts us. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. In John chapter 19, verse 30, John records that this loud cry that Jesus makes is, It is finished. It's a cry of completion. This changes everything. This changes the course of human history. It is finished. A few years ago, I watched for the first time a film called Saving Private Ryan. This is an excellent film. This film is about a guy called James Ryan. And early in the film, we find out that his three brothers, Sean, Peter, and Daniel, are killed in the D-Day landings in 1944. The general field marshal of the U.S. Army demands that this last boy, James Ryan, be rescued and taken out of the firing line so that his mum won't suffer the loss of their four sons. Tom Hanks and uh, some other guys go to rescue this lad, James Ryan, and they do rescue him, but all eight of the men who are sent on this mission die. At the end of the film... Tom Hanks is dying, having rescued James Ryan. And he says to James Ryan, as he's dying, earn this. In other words, eight men have died to rescue you. You better earn this. You better live a worthy life. Tom, uh, sorry, the film flicks forward 50 years. And James Ryan, as an old man, is at the grave of Tom Hanks. As he kneels and weeps, he says, at the grave of Tom Hanks, I hope I have earned what you did for me. I hope it was enough. Every day I thought about what you said to me. All through his life, the words, earn it, earn it, earn it, were screaming at him. Earn it. Those words from his rescuer, he would have lived with that sense. But as Jesus dies, he doesn't say to us on Good Friday, earn it. He doesn't say that. He cries out, it is finished. It's completed. It's done. I've paid for your sin on the cross. I've suffered for you. It's finished. Charles, it's finished. It's done. You don't have to earn your salvation. It's done. Isn't that incredible? That's what he says to us this morning. It is finished. And then finally, Mark pans across to what's happening at the temple. I'm pleased to say at this point, that at the moment, Manchester United Football Club are not doing very well. I'm really pleased to say that. <laughs> and the reason why I mention that is because every time they concede a goal, the cameras pan towards Alex Ferguson in the stadium, and they look for his response at the same time as United are conceding a goal. And just like that, Mark, in his gospel, pans to the temple to see what is happening there. And we read that at the temple, the curtain is being torn in two. The temple for years was where God's presence dwelt. You'd walk into the temple and you'd see a huge curtain. It was like a no-entry sign. It blocked the presence of God off from anyone else. Behind the curtain was the Holy of Holies, where no one could go. And it was a constant sign that it was impossible for sinful people to dwell in the presence of a holy God. But you see what happens in Mark 38, sorry, chapter 15, 38, The curtain is ripped in two as Jesus dies on the cross. 
What does that signify? It signifies that now all of us have unlimited direct access to God all of the time. Isn't that incredible? We have unlimited access to God all the time. All we need to do is come to him, ask for forgiveness for our sin, put our trust in him, and we will receive eternal life, a life that starts now and goes beyond death. 1 Peter 3.18 says that Christ died for sins once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. We can now come to God accepted because of what Jesus did on the cross. I'm going to invite Neil and David up. As uh, they come, I just want to bring your attention to Mark chapter 15, verse 39, which says this, when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, what did he say? Surely, surely, this man is the son of God. This man, earlier in the John's Gospel, we read that John the Baptist sees Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God, who will take away the sin of the whole world. We're going to come to Jesus now, knowing that he is the Son of God, who takes away the sins of the whole world.